Well, a year right after the uh, terrible earthquake devastated Haiti, I was a part of a mission team that traveled down to that country to do what we could in a week of service. As, as the visiting pastor, the church that was hosting us said, you've got to preach on Sunday, and I was happy to do so. Before we left, though, I contacted the pastor and, and asked him, what's the normal wear? Do you wear robes and stoles in your congregation? What do you wear? Is it, is it more casual? How, how was the dress? And he said, oh, the pastors always wear a, a coat and tie. I said, fine, and so I packed a suit and tie along to go, and then it came day for the day for the church. We'd been in country for about three or four days. It came up to Sunday. It was time for the worship service. We got to their sanctuary, which was really not much more than a roof with no walls, several poles, of course, holding that roof up, seating for maybe 250. There was about 400 people jammed in there that morning on that Sunday morning. It was 10 o'clock already. It was 90 degrees and humid. Did I mention that it was humid? <clears throat> Got into the sermon and got going and had a great time preaching the sermon, but I got to tell you, I soaked through that entire suit that I was wearing. My suit coat was soaked in, I know it's kind of disgusting on a Sunday morning. My suit coat was wet, my tie was soaking wet from, from all of that, all that. It was so hot, but it was such a wonderful and amazing service to participate in. Like I said, there had to be 400 people, including our group of, of missionaries from the Midwest who'd gathered to go down there crammed into this space, the uh, singing and the music and, and everything was wonderful, but I had a great time in the sermon because I'd, I'd sort of learned after several poor attempts at preaching with a translator that instead of having long paragraphs and long stories, what I needed to do was keep my sermon in short, simple, easy to understand sentences so the translator would be able to follow me and go along and Covan, who was my translator, this young 20-year-old college student was amazing. He would listen to me give a word or two and then he would, he would say it in Creole, the language they spoke, and he would even mimic my, my, my hand gestures. I'd say, the love of God is for everyone, and he would say in Creole, the love of God is for everyone, and they would all amen him. Uh, the word amen, by the way, in Creole, do you know how to say it in Creole? It would be amen, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I knew they were into the sermon, or at least they liked what, what Covan was saying, whatever was happening there, but they just amen all the way through, and I forgot, I forgot how hot and sweaty it was. I forgot about all of that. We just had this amazing experience. Well, the sermon was over, and then it came time for the offering. They always took the offering afterwards. In fact, the pastor teased me a little bit and said, we'll be able to tell what they think of your sermon by the offering. <clears throat> That's why we take the offering early here. That's why we do that. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm, we're having fun, and now it's time for the offering. The music starts low and quiet, and there's this little bit of movement. In the, I'm not going to dance too much. Don't worry. But there's this little bit of movement in the congregation, and they're kind of swaying to the beat, and pretty soon all the people stand, and the music gets this, builds on this crescendo, and now they're starting to clap, and the music's getting louder, and, and somehow there's a cue, or it's a practice. I don't know exactly what it was, but the people in the back came forward with their offerings. None of them had anything made out of paper. There were no checks. There were no bills. They had a few coins but they came down the aisle dancing and singing and full of life and joy, and they filled the table that was at the front of the chancel with what little they had. In fact, most of these people, most of these people, for God's sake, had lost what little they had a year before. Some lost loved ones. Some lost everything. And yet here we were in worship on a Sunday morning in joy, giving what we could, bringing what we had to share with that congregation, to share with each other, to share with the Lord.
You know, that, that week we were there, there were, we brought down several nurses from the Kansas City area, and I was there along with another pastor to teach classes in their seminary to, to do some lecturing on preaching and, and Bible uh, teaching, etc. Had a marvelous time, but in almost every meeting that we had with some of the, the Haitians, in almost every single one, there were two common themes. Go back, please, to America and tell them how beautiful our country is. Yes, it's devastated. Their, their infrastructure was just, what little they had was gone. But there's a beauty there. They wanted us to be sure to share that. And they said, secondly, tell your people we have hope. We have hope. What, what is it about, about the, that, those, these third world countries, these places where they have to struggle just to survive but still find the thread of hope to pull them forward, to see the beauty and everything that is around them? I remember a few years before that, being on a mission trip to South Africa and staying in the home of someone who lived uh, in a township. You know, the townships were formed during apartheid where blacks, and uh, primarily blacks, some coloreds were forced to live. Those are the, worms, the terms they use there. Were forced to live there and they're still stuck there in poverty. Couldn't believe how, how overwhelmingly kind they were. Uh, the missionary that we worked with, she said, there's this sort of contagious generosity they, they want to share so much. And that's the title of the sermon, the Contagious Generosity. I remember going to this, this one place where I stayed with a family for three nights. And on my, my first morning there, after spending the first night, I woke up and, and there was this simple breakfast waiting for me. An egg, a piece of meat of some kind, and a piece of toast. And I just I almost was overcome with, with tears at, at this simple family providing for me a meal knowing that they might not have any food for tomorrow. Yet for them, it was so important to share what they had. Now, I need to tell you this, too. They, they had a little TV. It was about this big. It was really tiny. It was a screen that's smaller than most computer screens are, are these days. And they had this gigantic, strange uh, contraption called an antenna out the top of their little tiny home. And that while I was eating breakfast, the, the husband was watching a, a soccer game, a soccer match, or football, as they would say, in, in South Africa. And the, the wife went over while, we were eat, while I was eating my breakfast, and she, she said the word pastor in her language about me and changed the channel to a a TV evangelist from the United States. <laughs> I went over and sat down after breakfast and said, we could go back to football. It would be okay. <laughs> Sweet, gracious folks. But Paul is writing to the church in Corinth about a similar kind of situation at congregations he's worked with before. In the section just before Kate, the section that, that just before the one that Kate read, he talks about three different congregations in what was called back then Macedonia, what we understand today is part of modern day Greece. There was a church in Berea, there was a church in Thessalonica, and there was a church in Philippi, all of whom were undergoing persecution, all of whom were experiencing terrible difficulties. You know, in Paul's day, to be a Christian meant that you were in many ways ostracized. Maybe not necessarily persecuted, not necessarily jailed, although Paul certainly was on several occasions, but you would be ostracized from your friends and your neighbors. It would be difficult for you to, to make a living, to get any kind of an education, because you'd be seen as strange and unusual. And these three congregations are all suffering. They have very little. And yet, Paul raises them up as an example for the Corinthian church to follow. Listen, listen to what he says. During a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
For as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. They gave over and above according to their means. And now he's basically saying to the church in Corinth, you excel in everything. You excel in speech. You excel in knowledge. You excel in wisdom. You excel even in the love that we've given to you. Now here's a chance for you to excel in generosity. The church in Jerusalem was undergoing severe, severe time of trial. They're, they were unbelievably poor. They needed some support and some help. And Paul has come to them to say, please, if you can, give generously. Give in a, in a generous way. He names the need. He names it clearly for them. But here's a fascinating thing. In the section that Kate read, Kate read, he picks up not only from naming it, but he gets into some deep theology. Now, now normally, it's, in fact, we did it this morning. Both Jim and I mentioned the week of compassion offering. There's great need at the border. We would love for you to support that need. And then we stopped there. Paul took it another level. He takes it into a theological understanding of who Jesus is. And he essentially says to them, do you see the way Christ gave his own life, his own love for the world? He gave himself for you so that you could have a new life, a new possibility of life? What Paul's essentially saying is Jesus is bringing heaven to earth. Jesus is bringing down what already has been experienced in heaven onto earth. And he wants to, through us, to make sure that everyone has a roof over their head that everyone has enough food on their plate, that the simple terms of justice, shalom, peace, are guaranteed for every person. Food and a safe place to live, to lie your head at night. He's essentially saying to the people, bring heaven to earth through Jesus. It'll unify the church. It'll strengthen us. Maybe it doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but this is, this is an amazing thing for a preacher to do, to dive this deeply into theology in order to help them understand where their generosity can come from and how it can grow and how it can expand and make a difference in the world. It sounds like something that he wrote to the church in Philippi, in fact, in another letter. He said that Jesus did not, did not take the fact that he was equal with God as a thing to be grasped and held on to. Instead, he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant. The word, I've told you this before, the word for servant in Greek is doulos. It's the same word that Paul uses here. Sometimes it's translated literally as slave. And then according to the context, it might also be translated as minister, which means that ministers technically are servants and slaves. Please don't share that with the governing board. I don't know that we have any... But do you see what he's saying? We are called together as the church to give ourselves over to each other, whether we're pastors or parishioners, as, as, the, as the priesthood of all believers, to share with the world wherever and whenever we can, to give what we can and do so with generosity in our heart and our spirit. And it's not just about the money. It's about the way we give ourselves to each other. Sometimes, though, in the church, we forget about this. Sometimes it's easy to get caught up in, in other things that, that blind our vision and keep us from seeing how we're called to serve each other and to serve the world. I was once invited to come to a congregation that was kind of stuck in something like this. There was a, a, an unintentional hierarchy that had kind of come into the church. They, they built it into their, to their constitution and bylaws, but it was creating some stress. You see, what would happen is you'd join the church, maybe you'd become a part of a committee or a circle or a guild. And then after a while, you might become the committee chair. 
And then after a while, people would notice that you were actively involved, and they'd say, you know, that he should be a deacon, or she should be a deacon. Then you might serve as a deacon and help with communion and receiving the offering, those kinds of things. And they'll say, you know, boy, they've been a really good servant. Let's ask them to be an elder. And in that congregation, the elders were sort of the, the, the spiritual leaders of the church, not a clearly defined role, but they would gather for prayer and to pray for the church and so forth. And what happened was this sort of unintentional hierarchy had been developed, as though somehow there was this, this group of elders were the highest of the, of the high. And they, they got to be aware of this when the church experienced growth. There were more people coming to worship. There were more needs for more servants. And so the nominating committee went to a couple of the elders and said, we need more deacons. Would you be willing to also serve as a deacon so that we can continue to worship with all the people who are gathering now? The church is getting fuller every week. It's a good problem to have. And one of those elders said, no, I've already done that. I've done my part. And oh, it kind of ignited a little bit of a conversation. And they asked me to come in then and lead a workshop on leadership. And so I reminded them of Philippians chapter 2. That Jesus, though he was equal with God, considered not a thing to be grasped, instead let go, emptied, became a servant. That's the model we follow. And I told him a story about my own ordination, where similar words, in fact, were spoken. I told him about my friend Doug Dornherker, who preached my ordination sermon. In fact, by the way, my ordination was 30 years ago last week. Doug preached that, at that, in, that, uh, in that service, and he said that I, that I was much like a minister, much like Madonna and Michael Jackson, and he meant that as a compliment. <laughs> and by the way, I was born the same year, same year as, as, as Michael and, and, and as Madonna. He talked about Julie, and he said, whenever you've been stuck between a rock and a hard place, she's been your dynamite to set you free and move you forward. It was a beautiful day. I, could, I just get goosebumps thinking about how, how exciting it was to be with my family and my friends and all these church leaders who were saying, yes, you should go and do this. Well, a few days later, I went back to First Christian Church in Concord, California, where I was serving as a youth minister. I was at my desk. No, it was a Wednesday or a Thursday morning. Senior minister was gone. I think he went to Hawaii. It was just me, the church secretary, and the custodian who then decided to take the day off. I was literally sitting there at my desk looking at my ordination certificate. Hadn't framed it yet. I'm just looking at it on my desk, and I'm asking myself out loud, why did I do this? Lord, what have I done? What's, what am I going to do? What, what do I do? And then there was this knock on the door. And it was Kathy. She came in and said, um, Glenn, the men's room is overflowing into the hallway. <laughs> this really wasn't a comment. It was a command. <laughs> and so I went to the kitchen, found a couple of plastic sacks, tied them around my shoes, found the mop. I waded into this not very pleasant muck. And then I realized, this is what ministers do. Frankly, this is what churches do. We wade into the mess, you and I together. Sometimes the mess is named death, and it's come out of nowhere. Sometimes it's a mess named divorce, and it's ugly and painful and nasty and mean and hard to face. Sometimes it's a mess named disease, and it's so unfair, and it's so wrong, and it's so crippling. That's what we do is we we wade into it. That's what a contagious generosity looks like. It's a willingness to go wherever the world is at its worst and bring not only the hope and the good news of Jesus Christ, but a mop and a, and a bucket and maybe some diapers and a wipe or two to make a difference. 
Now, of course, sometimes it is about the money. Sometimes it frankly is. The money comes as a way of affirming and confirming where we need to go and what we need to do next. We've, we are spending quite a bit of money on this campus here at the South, on our campus at the North, and we're soon going to be spending some additional money on, on, on Camp Akita in order to upgrade it and do some more really exciting things there. And what we're saying is we want to build the church for the next 50, the next 100 years. We want to build a congregation that will be strong in the Columbus area, known throughout the United States, maybe even around the world, for providing a bit of hope, a cup of cold water for those in need. We're going to absolutely thrive if, if, if this foundation that we're building firmly becomes a place where we can stand together, move forward in faith. So yeah, it's about the money, but sometimes, and maybe most of the time, it's a lot more. It's about a lot more than the money. It's about living in an open and generous way. It's about letting the Spirit of God guide us in everything we do and say, the way we treat each other, at church, home, on the road, school, at the store, the ball game. It's about a generosity of spirit that changes us. Several years ago, I was invited to, to present a paper at the International Gathering of the Society of Biblical Liter Literature at the Vatican in, in Rome, Italy. It was one of the most nerve, nervous moments I've, I've ever experienced. Uh, unbelievably difficult uh, to stand in front of all these scholars who are pretty sure they all know a lot more than you do. And in my session, it was in this, this college, it was at the College of the Vatican. Again, no heat, no, I mean, no air conditioning, nothing. It was in July and it was very hot and very humid. I don't know what it is about me in sweaty places like this. But I gave my paper, and that went pretty well, and then we got into the Q&A, and there were some tough questions, not unfair questions, but some tough ones. And a couple of times the tone was a bit biting, but the, but the facilitator for, for my paper, for the meeting in which I presented, was this wonderful, sweet woman, maybe about this tall. She was a, a Russian Orthodox nun. Her name was Sister Teresa. She had this pleasant approach could be clear and direct, could reframe some of the questions in a way that didn't seem so intense or so attacking. She just absolutely saved my life in the way that she led that conference and that conversation and the way things went. Well, a couple of days later, we had the closing banquet for the, the conference there at the Vatican, and, and it was a marvelous meal. We ended up, Julie and I ended up being seated at the same table where Sister Teresa was. And so as we sat down, I, I was my normal self. I was excited and nervous and hyper. And so I just started talking a lot. And, and I said, tell me, it's been so exciting to be here. Our, our, our hotel is at the Hotel Academia. It's in the ancient part of Rome. And oh, it's so cool. And we ate out last night at this great place. And the night before at this other place, we've been having these wonderful meals. And, and oh, we just love being here. We've seen this museum and we've been to this. We've done all these things. And finally, there's this kick under the table. And it's Julie kicking me. And it was her way of saying, shut up. <clears throat> and I took a breath. And I said, well, Teresa, tell us about, about your, your time here. What's it been like for you? Have you eaten at any, any amazing restaurants? Have, have you had any experiences like that? What's it been like for you? And she had this sweet, calm voice. And she said, oh, I, I took the train from Russia to come here. I have to take the train every morning because I'm staying in a, in a Roman Catholic convent about 20 miles outside of town. They've been so gracious to me. We gather for a communal meal every evening. We say our prayers and share in the food. And then afterwards, there's another service of prayers. I, I, I'm so blessed to be with these, these sweet sisters of mine. 
it's such an honor to be here, she said. I've so enjoyed getting to meet you and your wonderful wife. I, I, I had to save, she said, for 10 years to be able to afford this trip. I've been a scholar for a long time, but never able to come to any of these meetings. This is my first one, and it's such a wonderful thrill to be here with all of you. Even to this day, I'm overwhelmed by the thought of Sister Teresa, her brilliant mind, her quiet humility, her sweet and generous spirit. In her, I saw a, a, a generosity that was contagious. I was overwhelmed by her strength of character and her powerful scholarship. The story of what God was doing through this woman was, was, was unbelievably, unbelievably amazing. And the story of what God is doing today in our lives, in your life, can be just the same. This, this willingness on God's desire to, to make a difference, not, not only in our neighborhood and the world, but maybe as close as your own heart to speak to you in a way that perhaps you've never heard before. You see, this entire appeal from Paul to the church in Corinth is given in the light of grace. It's the grace of Jesus Christ that invites us to allow the contagiousness of the very spirit of heaven to take us over in everything we say and do.